Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we're talking about TV actors who reinvent themselves after being defined by one character. Plus, we're joined by former Downton Abbey star Dan Stevens, who's currently starring in FX's X-Men spinoff, Legion. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Solar-Seitz. Hello, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hello. Hey, Jen. So today, today is Valentine's Day, guys. Happy Valentine's Happy Day. Happy Valentine's Aww. Day. So romantic to be here with you guys. <laughs> I I wouldn't want to be with anyone else. <laughs> I, I, I regret wearing a tuxedo. It's very uncomfortable. Yeah. It, well, it, 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 it was a bold well, move look, on your part. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good look. So, just in honor of in honor of the holiday, we this week's prompt is. What is your favorite romantic episode of television? Wow. Well, you know, I guess we should, I don't know, maybe maybe it doesn't matter. But do are we talking about romantic in the yay, romance and love are great sense or mm-hmm. more in the, oh, my God, I want to crawl on a hole and die tragic operatic sense? Because, well, so, you know, because sometimes I think the second thing can be as satisfying as the first, although it doesn't make you feel good. The second one sounds way more interesting. Hmm. So... <laughs> Hey, I was thinking the first, but I'm all for the second. I think, you know, I'm dating myself here, but that episode where uh, on Moonlighting where David uh, Addison uh, goes over to uh, Maddie's house and uh, Mark Harmon's character is there. Mm. And it's raining. Of course it's raining. (laughs) And it's like so much rain that it's like it's like it's the end of Apocalypse Now or something like that. (laughs) I liked that. I thought that was great. And also, this has got, I just sound like such a perverse individual, but the relationship between Hannibal Lecter and Will Graham Mm. on Hannibal was the greatest love story of the last three years on TV, I think. I concur. Large, you know, unconsummated physically, unless you count the uh, fantastic uh, three-way battle at the end of the show uh, uh, with uh, the Red Dragon. <laughs> you know, which is like, and in fact, Brian Fuller, when I interviewed him, he said, like, basically that that was a sex, was a scene. sex scene. That was what he said. Yeah. Oh, which reminds me of another intimate moment that was just compared to a sex scene, which is on the Americans when Philip is pulling out Elizabeth's Elizabeth's tooth, tooth. extracting her extracting tooth. That was amazing. And it was like that was amazing. Just that kind of trust that had to be there in order for. For him to do that without any kind of pain medication or whatsoever was just... I tend to prefer the really primal sorts of, you know, love stories to the more kind of urbane romantic comedies. Mm-hmm. I think generally I love stuff like that. That's like one, why one of my favorite movies is Last of the Mohicans. <laughs> where it's like, you know, what's at stake is like the preservation of a bloodline, you know? Right. <laughs> How about you, Jen? Well... If we're talking about romance in a more uplifting context, Mm -hmm. I was going to say the lost episode, The Constant, which is the one where Desmond and Penny finally reconnect. It's it's a difficult episode to watch, like, on its own if you've never watched Lost, which is true of pretty much every episode of Lost except for episode (laughs) one. But but it's a really beautiful episode. A lot of people think it's one of the best episodes of Lost, period, but it has that love story in it that... Um, that I really love. And then if you're talking about heartbreak, weirdly, the first thing I think of is the Party of Five episode where um, um, Charlie is supposed to uh, get married to Kristen and then they don't. Oh, I like yeah. wept mm. through that episode because <laughs> you didn't think that was what was going to happen. You know, you thought it was going to be this nice, happy wedding. And then 
he calls it off just like just like you thought he kind of might because that was what his personality was. And it's just so devast- it's devastating because of her reaction and also because you can see the impact it's going to have on her and her relationship with the kids. That's what kills you about that. That is really sad. I forgot about that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What a bummer this episode is becoming. Golly. Yeah, this is the saddest <laughs> Valentine's Day Somebody ever. Somebody tell a joke. I, well, I mean, <laughs> my original pick was a very, you know, one that everyone will recognize, the Friends episode where uh, the, I forget what it's called, but it's the She's Your Lobster one. Right. Uh, <laughs> which is just a classic episode of Friends. The... The reveal of this, you know, the, this video reveal of like Ross making this incredibly beautiful gesture of love, which is taking Rachel to the prom after her her date bails on her after like a whole series of episodes where Rachel just can't just hates Ross because I forget why at this point in the series. I think because she ma- he made a list about her and Julie, which is a really shitty thing to do. OK, Dad. Rachel, ready or not, here comes your knight in shining. believe you did that yeah well grand gesture the grand gesture so so that's this week's prompt listeners if there's a romantic episode of television that you love please share it with us you can email us at tvquestions at vulture.com next up we're talking actors who have reinvented themselves we'll be right back so later in the show vultures abraham reisman is going to be sitting down with dan stevens star of fx's legion who you probably know best from his work as matthew crawley on downton abbey And before he gets into that, we thought this could be a fun opportunity to talk about actors who are strongly associated with one TV character, only to completely reinvent themselves in another role. And usually this is the case with TV characters who are so big and larger than life, it's hard to see them in in any other way. Mm -hmm. Like one of the first examples that comes to mind is John Hamm, who played Don Draper on Mad Men. And... And then he appeared on 30 Rock. I'm Drew. Sorry, I smell like frosting. Just love to bake. I want to go to there. And it was just this amazing moment where you saw him as a comedic person. Ever since then, he's, you know, he's been on Kimmy Schmidt. He was on Bridesmaids. He's kind of embraced this persona to the point where I think you are able to see him beyond Don Draper. Yeah. Well, and, I think what was smart about what he did was that he was doing that concurrently. So he was on right. 30 Rock and Mad Men was still going. And so he, you know, a lot of actors, they they do the show that, that typecasts them and then they try to get another role after that and it's tough. He was already kind of laying the groundwork so that you could see him, you could see his versatility before Mad Men ended, which I think was smart of him. Right. And... 
you know, that's arguably hard, too, to kind of get those roles while yeah. you're doing the role. And right. I imagine there was some element of, you know, this this will be cool to have people see this person who is so stoic in this incredibly goofy way. Well, we've seen characters who were, uh, we've seen actors who were strongly associated with one part who were able to have distinguished careers outside of that and, and, you know, play a variety of roles that aren't like that character they're known for. But when you have a part that's like a great iconic, like truly iconic part, then you're always going to be associated with that. Like, I just don't think there's any way around it. And, you know, I think of somebody like uh, Carol O'Connor, Carol O'Connor was Archie Bunker. He was Archie Bunker. That was his first line of the obituary role. And he was on uh, another hit show uh, in the heat of the night, which ran for a number of years, I think almost as long as All in the Family. Um, And he was excellent on it. I mean, really, really, I think as good in that role as a redneck sheriff with a drawl as he was playing Archie Bunker, the former, you know, World War II mechanic from Queens. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but he'll always be Archie Bunker. And I think, you know, I think that a lot of the people who filled those kinds of roles, there's one part that they're always going to be associated with. Ham, uh, you know, is I think he's an amazing actor and, and it's great seeing how good he is at comedy because you wouldn't necessarily know that if you just saw him on Mad Men. But he's always going to be Don Draper. You're right. right. It's not so strong that it overwhelms or can possibly contend with Don Draper. Although you but, do get an interesting situation like that happened to Brian Cranston, which was you would have thought that he would go to his grave as Hal on Malcolm in the Middle. Right. And then Breaking Bad came along. What's your name? Heisenberg. Heisenberg. Okay. I'm seat Heisenberg. I don't imagine I'll be here very long. And now it's like he's he's Walter White. But also, he was on this other really great show. Yeah, I mean, you know. if anything, people don't even remember Malcolm in the Middle. I know. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Although I, I also think of him as Tim Watley, the dentist on Seinfeld. Yes. That might <laughs> you converted to Judaism just for the jokes. <laughs> it's one of my favorite lines. Well, another one that comes to mind is Kyle Chandler, who was coach on Friday Night Lights. And obviously, that's the role that that's most definitive of his career. I had watched him on early edition. So I was like, Hey, Mm -hmm. it's the guy from early edition. But like that wasn't, that didn't make a strong enough impression to kind of last. And then he tried to do, or then he did bloodline, which, you know, definitely was a very different, darker type of role, but it's still, that's partly, I guess the luck of the draw, like whether the show is going to become a phenomenon and bloodline did not become a big enough phenomenon to Mm -hmm. overwhelm any other impression of him. So like while he was able to obviously play a different role very well, it's like he'll still always be coach in my mind. Yeah. Right. And and some some actors, uh, I think, lean into that. Like Lucille Ball, of course, was uh, Lucy mm-hmm. on I Love Lucy. And every subsequent sitcom that she had, she was kind of playing an incarnation of Lucy and the character was called Lucy and the show had Lucy in the title. Yeah. You know, so it's like, why, why fight it? Yeah, I think I remember... One that sticks out to me is Jennifer Aniston, like at the height of Friends, uh, took a role in The Good Girl. I was, I was hoping you'd mention that. And that yeah. role was, I remember what a big deal that was. She Everyone, was great in that. She was amazing in that. And, you know, it was a complete change from this bubbly character we knew her as on Friends. And I was, oh, I always hoped that she would kind of go down that path more. And she kind of seems to have gone 
down the more you know she was legitimately excellent in that although i think a part of the part of the part of the revelation of it was the fact that you thought you thought of her as her character on friends so right. so when you saw what a completely sociopathic character she was it, it hit harder and it's almost like when sergio leone cast henry fonda as the bad guy in once upon a time in the west that he said, you know, a big part of him wanting Henry Fonda for that part was because when Hen the first time Henry Fonda did something evil, the audience would go, holy shit, that was Henry Fonda. Right. Yeah. I, and like, I, think, I think that's true of Kyle Chandler, too. I feel like that worked on Bloodline to some extent because yeah. mm -hmm. um, you expect him to do the right thing and to be a good guy. And he's even he's playing, isn't he law enforcement on Bloodline, if I'm yes, remembering correctly? Yes. He got a lot of roles like that. Like in Wolf of Wall Street, he's he's mm -hmm. in, you know being on the right side of the law kind of character. And yeah. so when you see, you don't expect him to do the wrong thing. And I think that worked to his advantage in Bloodline. Um, but you, mentioning Friends, like, I feel like David Schwimmer is still contending with this to some extent. Oh, yeah. Even though he's done a lot of other things since he played Ross Geller, people still think of him as Ross Geller in a way that I, I, I think is is limiting to him or probably he feels like it's limiting sometimes. And so when he played Robert Kardashian on People vs. O.J., um, I feel like, uh, you know, sometimes people were kind of like, hey, Ross is playing Robert Kardashian. Right. It became a big joke. Yeah, I got to stick up for David Schwimmer, though. Not that anybody's talking bad about him as an actor here, but just like yeah. I for me personally, I felt like he I, I, I don't think of him primarily as his character on Friends because mm -hmm. I've seen him in some other parts where I went, wow, this guy, there's a depth to this guy that that people don't really appreciate. Like he was in an HBO film with Chris Cooper called Breast Men. Which was like years ago, and it was uh, it was about the uh, true story of these two uh, plastic surgeons from Texas who were kind of competing in the breast augmentation business, and then everything fell apart when there was a you know the leakage and and women were filing lawsuits and things like that. And he was playing a sleazy, cocaine addict hustler type character, and he was very very good. And of course, on People versus OJ, you know, I thought, but I mean, you well, could say that both of those characters had elements of rawness. Right. I think yeah. with People versus OJ, especially because it was such a phenomenon, like his character was like kind of dopey in this way that felt reminiscent, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and then it, there was the whole thing with him saying juice all the time. Got it, juice. When Chris and I broke up, the juice was there for me every night. It's like he's not really the juice anymore. We got to get you dressed, juice. Juice, juice, a will? Juice. Juice, juice. And there was a clip from Friends of him talking about orange juice, and there was like a mashup of that, and then it just it just becomes this like yeah. I, mean, I agree. Whole I think thing. He, I think he does have depth that he doesn't get credit for, but I but I think the population at large, with him in particular, maybe more than anybody else on that show, has a hard time forgetting him as Ross, and and, and I don't think it's fair to him to be honest. But I but it's but it's I think there. Matt Le, I think Matt LeBlanc has the same problem. But then he honestly. just keeps playing similar types of roles. I think. Well, yeah, the and, and then the question becomes like, is that because that's all that's offered to him, right. or is he seeking those out because they know it plays to his strengths and people mm -hmm. feel affection for him from friends? Right. Probably. You know, good question. Both, maybe I don't know. I mean that that uh, that's sort of I think the key question off screen for a lot of these these actors and actresses is uh, how do they feel about that if they're if they are identified very very strongly with one character who is a, a an important and or even beloved character are they okay with that does it bother them do they do they feel like it's a slight against them as a as an actor or 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 do they embrace it I'm not that I could know but I would imagine one would have mixed feelings about it because to have been on a show that was so big that you can't escape it, you still have to realize that that was a blessing and in your life. 
And but on the other hand, it's a curse in this way that casting you become pigeonholed in this way. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't have your career without it in a way, but you also have to contend with it. So I, I, I would imagine it would be kind of a blessing and a curse. I think it's hardest for people, for actors who get cast in a role that defines them in this way when they're very young. Um, When they're actually very young or they're playing a teenager, whether they're actually a teenager or not, Um, because especially if a show goes on for a long time, it's even harder to break out of that and try to become something else. Like I remember years ago, (laughs) weirdly enough, I was interviewing Ron Palillo, who played Horshack on Welcome Back, Hotter, and he was doing one of those like autograph shows where people like travel around and they I mean, the whole thing is they're kind of um, it's about the nostalgia around whatever that character was. Right. And they make a pretty penny doing that, I've heard. They do. And naturally, I was asking him a lot of Welcome Back Cotter questions. And at one point, he just like blew a gasket and like was was really getting pissed off that I kept asking about it. And I could tell it was because he wanted probably something else that he never got to to try as an actor. Uh, And I felt kind of bad for him in that way. But at the same time, as you said, Gazelle, like you got to be on that fucking horse shack, man. That's pretty cool. Right. <laughs> and you were really good on that show. Yeah. Um, but, but I think, like, I imagine, you know, you think about a show like My So-Called Life or, or even Freaks and Geeks. Had those shows, we wanted those to last more than one season. But, but if they had, would Claire Danes or, or all the, the people that were on Freaks and Geeks have been able to transition and do other things as easily as they did? Or would they have been thought of as those characters too much? Would well, Linda what, Cardellini have been in Brokeback Mountain, which she'd right. been on Mad Men? Well, right. one person that comes to mind who did this very effectively is Carrie Russell, because I think what worked here was because there was so much time between Felicity and the Americans, there's now a split in my mind between Carrie Russell as a young woman mm-hmm. and Carrie Russell as an adult and like playing a spy on this show that is very different from her character. So it it does not change my perception of like they're both very strong associations and neither mm-hmm. one kind of overwhelms the other. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like sometimes when enough time passes, you're able to completely reinvent yourself in a new role. Well, I always think of uh, years and years ago, I think it was when Gus Van Sant directed that shot-by-shot remake of Psycho, which is a very strange project. Uh, Janet Lee was on tour, I think, just sort of plugging into that, I think. And I interviewed her and I interviewed, I did a piece and I interviewed her about her entire career. And at one point I asked her, does it ever bother you that uh, the first thing people think of when they think of you is psycho? And she said, she said, no, she said, not at all. Think of it this way. You know, when you're starting out as an actor, your your dream, or at least for a lot of us, is to be in a classic film, is to be in like just one classic film. And not only was I in one of, was, in, was I in a classic film, I was in one of the all-time great classic films and... I was in the scene that everyone thinks of first when they think of that film. And beyond that, the image that people think of when they think of that film is me holding up my hand against that against the knife. Mm -hmm. And that's the image that's on the poster. And like so not only like basically I am the emblem of that film. And she said, like, how could I possibly have a problem with that? I like that attitude. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's it's true. Like she 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 understands you know, that is maybe that's like what you maybe want as an actor, which is to live forever in yeah. something. So she got it in that role. And how can you not appreciate that? Well, yeah. And she died a number of years ago. And here we are talking about her. Yeah. You know, but on the OK, on the flip side of that, just to be a devil's advocate for a second, 
Like, imagine a piece that you wrote when you were 20 or 21 that you're not particularly proud of, but other people really like it. And some people, like, love it. And they keep coming up to you when you're 50 years old. Remember that thing you wrote when you were 21? Let me read it out loud. It was so awesome. And you're like, oh, I don't want to hear about it anymore. It makes me cringe to hear it. There's also that element. If you were in something that you weren't really psyched about being in and everybody associates you with that. This is making me think of BoJack Horseman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, I have I have another anecdote about that, which is David, the actor David Patrick Kelly, who, you know, among other things, was in Twin Peaks. Uh, he, one of his early roles was in The Warriors. And he's the guy who says, Warriors, come out and play. You remember? And, <laughs> yeah. and so I was I just moved to New York. This is probably, you know, 96, 97. And I went to this little bakery in my neighborhood uh, to get some fresh bread, and there was David Patrick Kelly in line ahead of me. And I don't, I really don't try to, talk, I try not to talk to celebrities outside of an interview situation because I know they get approached all the time. But I love this actor, and uh, and so I said hello to him. I'm a big fan, blah blah blah. And uh, and I and I was thinking like, what's the, what can I mention to him that he was in? And the first thing that popped into my head was the Warriors. And I said, you know, I just watched the Warriors again recently, and his face fell. His face fell, and he's like, "Oh God!" And I said, "Well, what's the matter?" And he said, I'm t-, "He said I was terrible in that." And I was like, "You're not? No, you weren't. You were really good in that." And he goes, "No, no, I was terrible in that." And then he then he did that line, and he made it sound four times worse than the way he said it in the movie. He's like, "Warriors, come out and play." <laughs> and then he got his bread and he left, and I felt terrible for bringing oh, it up. Yeah, I don't know if he was just having a bad day. Maybe if I caught him on a different day, he would have been happy, but. You know, yeah, that's no, I it's the this is the dark side of of being known for one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Matt, you wrote an essay last year that I I liked about casting against type that was pegged to Fargo. And you talked about Bokeem Woodbine and Ted Danson's roles. And this is like a little different than being known for one character per se. But you wrote about why casting against type should just happen more in general. And yeah, I, I. yeah, and it's 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 just I just think it's really smart. I just think it's really smart to do that. And and one of the TV shows that I think did an, uh, an amazing job of that was uh, Deadwood. Deadwood counterintuitively cast almost every major role on that show, including Timothy Oliphant. Timothy Oliphant, for example, just to give one example, is now known as this sort of. Uh, Clint Eastwood, James Garner sort of actor. Like if you could put Clint Eastwood together with James Garner, you'd get Timothy Oliphant on Justified. And that's a great place to be in. And he wouldn't have been that if he hadn't played the sheriff on Deadwood. And prior to that, people forget this, but he was being groomed as like a Jack Nicholson type wise ass character. And he, he I can totally and, see that. Yeah. And David Milch <laughs> cast him as this stick up the ass lawman who is distinguished mainly by his complete lack of a sense of humor. <laughs> and I interviewed him and he was he was kind of annoyed. He, he was he was proud to be on the show. He loved the show. Everybody who was on the show loves the show. But he was also kind of bewildered even after two seasons. It's like, why the hell did David Melch cast me in this part? Like, you know, he said, like, I, I'm in a scene. Often I'll be in a scene with two or three people who are naturally very, very funny and their characters are funny. And I'm not allowed to be funny because I'm playing this part. He thought it was weird. On that same show, they cast Brad DeReef, who was often cast as like a kind of damaged, marginalized uh, kind of goofy characters or as psychopaths. Like the m- most recently, he was really well known for pl- being the voice of Chucky, the-, the possessed doll in Child's Play. And Milch cast him as Doc Cochran, the conscience of the town. 
And I think when they do that, like a lot of times actors who've been pigeonholed in a particular type of part, when you put them in a part that they aren't normally asked to play, they're so incredibly excited that they really, really commit. Like they go the mm-hmm. extra mile. It's be- and it's much, much better to do that, I think, from the standpoint of getting more, more energy, more effort mm-hmm. out of an actor than casting them to play the ninth cop in a row. Right. That they played. It's probably more exciting as an audience member, too, in some ways. Well, that was part of the shock of seeing uh, Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad. Yeah. You know, after you'd seen him for X number of years on Malcolm in the Middle, where he's like doing slapstick every single week. Well, now Timothy Oliphant is on a zombie show on Netflix, Santa Clarita Diet. So maybe. Well, and he, and it's so funny it's because, you know, he he's basically playing a Matthew Broderick part right i mean that's mm-hmm. a Matthew. that's a classic matthew broderick part that character where it's like <laughs> you know my my wife craves human flesh and i have to i have to get it for her and he's like <laughs> and he's like tells her honey you know yeah and it's weird it's a little weird at first seeing timothy oliphant play that because he's uh, you know he's a he's a handsome leading man type that's what we've mm-hmm. gotten to think of him of but after a while you get used to it well that's it for today's topic and we will be back in a minute with dan stevens Vulture staff writer Abraham Reisman sat down with Dan Stevens, star of FX's new series from Fargo creator Noah Hawley, Legion. The X-Men spinoff series may be the least comic booky adaptation of a comic book narrative we've seen yet. Stevens stars as David Haller, a mutant who believes he's had schizophrenia his whole life and is only now beginning to understand that he may actually have special powers. I am Abraham Reisman. I am a staff culture writer for New York Magazine and Vulture.com. And I am pleased to announce that I'm here with Dan Stevens of Legion. He plays David Haller, the lead. Thank you so much for coming here. Thanks for having me. So this is a really irritating, mundane question that gets asked all the time for folks in your position, but I have to, out of obligation. Did you read superhero comics growing up? Yeah, of course. I, um, my <laughs> what kind of question were, is that? <laughs> no, well, I mean, didn't you? I don't know. I guess there were people who who didn't, but um, no, my brother and I were, were big into the X-Men growing up, and um I mean, not to the extent that I have kept many of them. I don't think, you know, I, I think there was a there was a point where I was like, okay, I'll put this box out. Um, but definitely the the spirit of them stayed with me. And I don't know, this, it's something I, I, you know, it's been interesting watching over the years, the kind of the evolution of the, the comic book adaptation and, and what they stand for, what they try to do. And yeah, to kind of dive in, where we're diving in with Legion is kind of it's kind of interesting really. It's um it's taking something it's taking the spirit of them, I think, more than the actual frame for frame adaptation. Is there something about the the character, the 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 sense of awe and wonder that I remember getting from those those X-Men comics and also having a kind of playful it's a, a playful universe where you can bat around really big concepts and ideas right and families of misfits too that's yeah, yeah you know you know people have been branded as as different as mutants as freaks whatever and 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 how they're assimilated or you know and i think that that under underpins a lot of the, the x-men universe really is, is how we how do we treat those differently to ourselves and that's a that's a big old question Speaking of big old questions, what the heck is this show is one that I'm sure viewers are going to ask and you must have asked when you got the role or even maybe when you were auditioning. What did Noah Hawley tell you Legion was? It's so hard to summarize. What did he say? I mean, there were, there were a few things and he's, he's for, a, for a man of letters, he's, he can be a man of quite few words. <laughs> and uh, he, 
I think he said he said some very kind of elusive things like it's going to be beautiful and weird, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> I was like, okay, that sounds good. Weird, good, yeah, of course, you know. And and uh, but I I think you know I like. I like weird things anyway. I like things that are confidently weird, things that own their weirdness, you know. And the space that Legion occupies in the Marvel universe is a very epic and weird one anyway. So the scope for it was was huge and once I once I started to understand that in the hands of someone like Noah who is um you know a master at handling long form narrative anyway, you know, I thought the Fargo seasons were amazing, you know, the incredible creations and for a start, you know, those, those series were kind of crazy in in their conception, really. You know, I loved the Fargo movie, and, and I think a lot of people came to those series being like, what are you doing? You know, right. how dare you? And then sitting back and going, oh, actually, wow, that's such, an, that's such a smart idea. And uh, I'd enjoyed Noah's, uh, a couple of Noah's books. I read his first novel, uh, Conspiracy of Tall Men, before I met him. And What a title. It's a great title, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, he's not a tall man, Noah. So, you know, it, uh, it sort of <laughs> it says a lot about him. But, um, <laughs> but uh, similarly to, to um, After the Fall, it was, um, you know, a book about plane crashes and, and, but also a certain kind of paranoid conspiracy theory sort of mindset that uh, was very engaging to read. Anyway, we talked about that. We talked about a lot of, influences and passions and things and and a lot of those things have sort of poured into legion you know we we discovered that we both liked wes anderson we both like mm-hmm. kubrick um you know i i remember um well clockwork orange but also lindsay anderson's film if which was Mal- oh yeah Malcolm nice first right movie right very is, much the aesthetic of that period of english filmmaking right you know and there is a there is a bit of a kind of british invasion british new wave mm-hmm influence going on in legion you know a little bit just just as a kind of stylistic choice that was something noah really uh wanted to bring in to the to the show and i was all for that you know it's one of my favorite films and uh yeah there's something about you know the kind of again the sort of confident weirdness of those films that is just so i i find it electrifying to watch Uh, and speaking of confident weirdness you know this is a real departure for you from the work you've done in the past was there part of you that was really excited about doing this not to toss Downton Abbey under the bus at all but was part of you really excited to go like okay now I can prove that I can do a wide range of stuff was that something that was playing in your head I mean it wasn't really about proving that but it was a the being allowed the space to play in in this kind of arena but also in in a number of kind of arenas that I've I've been allowed to play in in the last few years it has is a total delight I mean for any performer and I think you know a big part of my my reason for wanting to you know move on from from Downton and from England was to explore you know some different genres and and to take in some different influences I think um and the range of people I've I've already got to work with over here and the styles I've I've been learning about and and just you know you just work with a, an actor like Bill Irwin for example, yeah. who is, you know, Bill Warren, who, who plays this uh, very, again, difficult to describe character, very difficult who's to describe half it. of two characters, right. he's, kind of he's, a scientist. He's, yeah, he's he's one half of a of an eccentric little pairing, and um, he doesn't really come in till, till the second episode, but um, but when he does, it's such a delight, the fun that he brings to the set, and, and also the kind of caliber of comedic brilliance. I, I don't know, he's he's a great clown and i mean that with all due respect you know in the in this right. sort of serious artistic sense of the word i, I did a set um, visit and uh in vancouver while you guys were shooting and 
you know, I had lunch with him and even just talking to him, the way he moves his hands and his right. head while he's talking is so controlled. I don't know how you develop a physicality like that. No, I mean, it's 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 years of years right. of work. that, And he himself has worked with some of the great you know, comedians of, of his age. And so I, I just get a kick out of that. I always have done working with with older actors, more experienced actors who've, who've worked in, in other fields, other genres. And, and you you can't help but learn from those people, I think, or at the very least stand there and, and admire what they're doing. And um, the fact that we have, you know, there's space in, in this show for Bill to to do his thing, you know, and, and I don't know how far, if you've seen the first three, no, it's a little little further into the season. You know, there's, you know, he, he really starts to explore the physicality of his mm-hmm. role, and there's 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 dance numbers and musical numbers that we play. Oh, with. really? There's oh, yeah. the one in the first. Uh, there's one in the first. That, yeah. but there's there's more to come. Oh, you know? great. Um, maybe not Bollywood specifically, but but um, uh, yeah, there's there's room for that kind of craziness, you know. Well, and you speaking of uh, more experienced people, you have Jean Smart, who's yeah. tremendous, and you know, really blew a lot of people away in Fargo, even though she's been out in the hustle for a long time. Yeah. What's it like working with Jean? What What do you remember oh, from being with her? She's amazing. I mean, she's she really is the kind of godmother of the set. And um, I heard she yeah, brought this, cookies one day. Oh, she brings all sorts of gifts. Yeah, she weirdly, I was reminded this morning, she brought my baby daughter a Royal Tenenbaums Adidas red tracksuit. It's the cutest thing I've ever seen. Oh um, we actually got it out this morning. It was just like, oh yeah, you're going to wear that today, honey. Um, but uh, yeah, I, knew, I don't know what possessed her to do it. She was like, I just saw this and thought of your little girl. And, and anyway, she's <laughs> the most thoughtful woman. But she's electrifying as as uh, Melanie Bird, this this sort of, um, you know, she is a, almost like the sort of headmistress of, of mm-hmm. Summerland, this, this secret uh, enclave of, of these mutants, you know, in our, in our world. But she, uh, she just commands such like automatic authority and respect. And, um, I think there's something very classic about her style. And again, it's, it, it's certainly for, for a, a foreigner you know, to, <laughs> to come and, and, you know, I've obviously grown up watching, you know, American movies and, and television my whole life, but to, to work with these people who've, who've been immersed in that kind of style of, of acting, that kind of style of performance, I I just love it. It's 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 a delight to my senses to kind of you know to work in in these different different media. I guess. And talking about senses, you know, one of the most remarkable scenes in at least the first few episodes, the ones that were released to critics, is uh, well, I guess it comes up over and over again. But it's the kitchen scene when all of yeah. the silverware goes flying. <laughs> now I interviewed Noah a few weeks ago, and he told me that was a practical effect, which mm. blew my mind. <laughs> it blew mine too, and I was a little worried when they said it at first. I was like, I'm going to be standing in there. Like no 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 no. <laughs> so what, tell me about shooting your part of it. Well, what they did do was they blew up that kitchen. I mean, they they loaded every cupboard and drawer with stuff, and they used this incredible piece of equipment, which looks like it looks like some kind of war machine. I think it was called the Bolt, <laughs> and it shoots at. It's very um, comic booky. It was terrifying honestly and it's the sort of thing like the guy you know you always with these special bits of kit you get like a couple of guys who show up just for that one day of its use you know and they and they're the guys who know how to use it you know and it's all very serious and, and um this guy was like yeah it shoots at a thousand frames per second uh, it'll move you know it's a, it's a two second shot and uh if you get in its way it will kill you you know <laughs> and like oh great so this is oh right and so and action you know and this thing just goes like and and everything blows up and and of course in the you know in, in in actuality it happens incredibly quickly but then of course you watch it back and everything looks cool in slow mo anyway but a thousand frames per second when you see these like 
playing cards and spaghetti and Pringles and, and knives and things just flying through the air. And we just watched the shot over and over again. And it plays, you know, it, it, it features, as you say, quite heavily in the, in the early part of the season. But, um, yeah, just crazy, crazy tricks like that. Um, there was something in at least every episode that, every department had never quite done before like the camera mm. the camera department were like okay this episode we're going to try and do that you know and and so right. everybody was being pushed to their creative limits and all the acting department were like we've certainly never done anything yeah. like before like what is going on well and especially in a scene like that you know you play a character who isn't exactly a superhero but he does have these paranormal abilities and you know, you have a tremendous amount of experience in doing Shakespeare and doing period drama. When you're approaching being a character who can move things with his mind, is there anything different about approaching that? Or do you just go like, you know what, I'm, you know, in that scene, I'm just going to scream. And then I assume that it'll look weird later. <laughs> I mean, with, with any of those things, there's a, you know, there's, you know, I, I, I always sort of look at filmmaking as a an exercise in collective madness anyway you know mm -hmm. it's like we we're all going to get in this room and everybody's going to believe that x is going to happen you know and and you know sure enough it it, it does and you, you you have to kind of project you all kind of have to project your imaginations as to how cool this thing is going to look because at the time it can look it, it can feel really weird or look really weird um but no it's 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 all about imagination really and uh you know sometimes you just use a bit more of it, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, tell me about working with Aubrey Plaza. She's crazy. What's she like off off, off camera? Crazy woman. <laughs> um, okay, but but absolutely brilliant. And I would say, you know, a, a bit like Bill, really. You know, she she has a great kind of clown thing going on. She's got this incredible persona that she's in possession of, and she's very much in control of. And and her. Her comedic skill is is I you know it's really unparalleled. Like I mean, she's she's wild, but the sense of of playfulness and fun and I mean, it's exactly what what this show needs and requires. But it's just so fun to go to work with someone who who has that kind of carefree attitude. I heard she um, dances a lot. She dances a lot in the show. Yeah, no, but oh, even off in, camera in general. Yeah, she's she moves. <laughs> <laughs> and uh we're running out of time so last question the most important question what's the hardest word to do in the american accent twizzler wow you nailed it just there though that's Thanks. it's one of the first words i have to say on the show and i was terrified of saying it yeah um it is about as american a word as you could ever come up with yeah did you know there's gluten in twizzlers are you gluten-free i'm a glutard oh <sighs> But uh, didn't know that. Who who knew that Twizzlers had gluten in them? There you go. <laughs> you never know where it's going to pop up. Yeah, I ate a lot of them one day on set and felt, felt really not very well. But maybe that's just, you shouldn't eat a lot of Twizzlers. But, know. You know, I like to think of your inability to digest gluten properly as a mutant power. You know, it's... Uh, yeah, right? It's human evolution. Yeah. Like, you should not be eating these things. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Dan. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Okay. That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for this week's Aria. This week, it's Matt's turn. Will they or won't they is one of the foundational cliches of television, and nobody did it better than Cheers. The love that was not meant to be is an even older cliche, and Cheers did that one just as brilliantly with the same couple. Sam and Diane are still the high watermark for star-crossed lovers on scripted television. They can't live with or without each other. What a horrible, exquisite feeling that is. How dare you callously and cruelly lump me in with the other 
conglomeration of Twinkies that constitutes your sexual past. There's just no pleasing that woman. Glenn and Les Charles and director James Burroughs had no idea how big it would be when they built the first season of their series around a former Boston Red Sox player and recovering alcoholic bartender named Sam Malone, played by Ted Danson, and had him hire a fussy academic barmaid named Diane Chambers, played by Shelley Long. It was clear that the two had combustible chemistry, despite the fact that neither was the type that the other would ordinarily date. Sam preferred the company of bimbos who'd be so wowed by his major league stats that they wouldn't care that he treated them as playthings. Diane preferred the company of intellectuals and artists, and sure enough, during the latter run of the series, after Sam and Diane had broken up for what was probably not the first time, she paired off with a loquacious, depressive psychiatrist named Fraser Crane, played by Kelsey Grammer. Diane, what are you doing here? I've been looking all over for you. Oh, Fraser, I'm so glad you're here. Diane, you shared our happy secret with Sam, didn't you? But their passion, while tempestuous, was never anything like the bond that Diane had with Sam. He was the bright light that drew her close and seared her wings. More so than Sam, she knew their match was a terrible one, but still they kept at it. At first they circled each other and their interactions were so aggressive that they often seemed charged with impending violence. Do you know what the difference is between you and a fat-braying ass? Nope. The fat-braying ass would. (laughs) Speaking of fat-braying asses, you're about to get dumped on yours. Dare you slap me. When they finally hooked up, it was one of the most talked-about unions in the history of television, not just because it had been a long time coming, but because they went at each other with a mix of adoration and hatred. They insulted each other and even got physical. You know, you know, I always wanted to pop you one. Maybe this is my lucky day, huh? You disgust me. I hate you. And then... Are you as turned on as I am? More! As the series picked up, it became immediately clear that their relationship was bad for everyone around them, and especially bad for Sam and Diane, who seemed to be taking turns playing the irresistible force and the immovable object. Eventually, they both came to their senses, and Diane left the show, and they both moved on, leaving Frazier to fly solo, too. He eventually ended up with Lilith, an even more tightly wound Diane type. But in some ways, it seemed as if Diane never left. She was an absent presence. Sam's relationship with the bar's new owner, Rebecca, and his dalliances with women when he wasn't with Rebecca alternately suggested personal growth and reversion. The series eventually revealed that Sam was a sex addict, a TV first for a major character, if I'm not mistaken. That makes Diane the high that he kept seeking despite his own realization that she would destroy him if he couldn't break that habit. When Diane came back onto the show, he reverted again, like an alcoholic falling off the wagon. Diane had qualities of the addict, too, although Sam appears to have been the only destructive chemical buzz she couldn't stay away from. The show is honest enough with itself to build the series finale around Diane's return and give them the impulsive, romantic ending that a lot of fans unrealistically wanted for them back in the day only to have both of them experience a moment of clarity while sitting on an airplane en route to getting married. We should have flown another airline, you know. Well, it's too late for that. 
It doesn't make any sense to rethink a decision that's already made. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. A commitment is a commitment. We wouldn't want to change things if we could. I'm sorry, folks, but I'm afraid we're going to be returning to the terminal. We'll have you disembark and arrange for you to take an alternate flight. Maybe we're being a little overcautious, but we don't want to make a mistake about something this important. Sorry. Hey. You know. Yes. I think we both know. Oh well, they would always have Boston. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. Awesome. Thank you.